Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On July 4th of the year 2000, the university made an announcement, probably made several announcements, but there's announcements, but there was one that was particularly important to me. It had two components. One, it announced the creation of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions in the Department of Politics. And it also announced that uh, the program would sponsor, uh, by the generosity of an anonymous donor, an annual lecture uh, in honor of the very distinguished McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence Emeritus, uh, Walter F. Murphy. And the Murphy Lecture has become the major event uh, in the academic year for the uh, Madison program. We look forward to it every year. And every year, we're delighted to bring to you a scholar of great stature to deliver a lecture in honor of a scholar of very, very great stature. Uh, Walter Murphy, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence Emeritus at Princeton, is among the most distinguished constitutional scholars of the 20th and now the 21st century. The Murphy Lecture in American Constitutionalism celebrates his dedication to excellence in the study of American and comparative constitutional law and theory. Professor Murphy uh, is and was not only a great scholar, uh, but a great teacher great teacher not only of students, but I think I can say without fear of contradiction, colleagues as well. Professor Murphy is uh, uh, the recipient of numerous honors, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Political Science Association Law and Court Section and the Chicago Foundation for Literature Award in 1980 for his best-selling novel, The Vicar of Christ. A decade after joining the Princeton faculty, Professor Murphy was named McCormick Professor, succeeding Woodrow Wilson, Edward S. Corwin, and Alpheus T. Mateson in one of the uh, nation's most uh, prestigious endowed chairs. I'm afraid things have gone down a bit since then, but uh, uh, it, it had quite a run. <laughs> Professor Murphy is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a senior fellow of the Italian Academy for Advanced Study uh, in America. He is the author of Wiretapping on Trial, Elements of Judicial Strategy, still very much in use, and Congress and the Court, as well as works of fiction exploring important political and religious themes, such as the Vicar of Christ, but also Upon This Rock, The Life of St. Peter, and The Roman Enigma. Professor Murphy earned a Purple Heart, Distinguished Service Cross, and three Battle Stars, as well as a Presidential Unit Citation for his service in the United States Marine Corps during the Korean War. Uh, I'm very, very uh, pleased and proud uh, to say that, uh, again, this year, Walter Murphy is with us for the Murphy Lecture, and I would ask you to join me in welcoming the great professor. I want to say a special word of welcome to Walter's uh, colleagues, uh, some of whom are uh, retired, some of whom are still active at the university or are here uh, with us this evening, not only to hear a very fine uh, lecture from Professor Powell, but also uh, to uh, show their uh, great respect for Professor Murphy. I also want to say a very, very special word of welcome and ask you to join me uh, in welcoming and acknowledging someone, another very special person. I mentioned that Professor Murphy's predecessors in the McCormick chair included the great Alpheus T. Mason. Uh, I'm delighted to say that Professor Mason's daughter is with us again this evening. Please welcome Mrs. Louise Batchelder. H. Jefferson Powell is a professor of law and professor of divinity at Duke University. He was educated at the University of Wales, where he earned his bachelor's degree in 1975. He 
He earned both a JD and an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, uh, at Yale University, and then earned his PhD in 1991 at Duke. His publications include Languages of Power in 1991, The Moral Tradition of American Constitutionalism in 1993, The Constitution and the Attorneys General in 1999, The President's Authority over Foreign Affairs, an essay in Constitutional Interpretation in 2002, and a community built on words, the Constitution in History and Politics, also in 2002. He's also written many, many uh, articles and book chapters, uh, including an article uh, used every year in our Constitutional Interpretation course at Princeton called The Original Understanding of Original Intent. Uh, Professor Powell has served uh, in the government as well. He has extensive experience, uh, among other positions. Uh, he has served as Principal Deputy Solicitor General in the United States Department of Justice, as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Department's Office of uh, Legal Counsel. He also served as Special Counsel to the Attorney General of North Carolina. I am uh, uh, pleased beyond measure to be able to welcome so fine and distinguished a scholar uh, to honor Professor Murphy this evening. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jefferson Powell. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight. As you've just heard, and as you no doubt all knew, Walter Murphy is really a giant in constitutional scholarship. He's someone who has led the way in all sorts of different directions. Long before it was um, the path to the hearts of presidents and provosts, Professor Murphy was refusing to stay bound by disciplinary borders or by uh, scholarly orthodoxies. Um, it's really a great honor to be able to uh, join you in celebrating such a distinguished scholar. I also want to say that it's a real personal ple pleasure. Many years ago, Walter Murphy invited a very green young law professor from the Midwest to come and talk at Princeton. Now, I have to admit, looking back, at the time that I got the invitation, I probably had in mind more what fun it was going to be to tell the dean, uh, guess where I'm going to talk, than on any higher or more important uh, matters. But it only took a couple of days I was here to realize that the real gift to me was of the chance to spend time with Walter and with a community of people dedicated to the proposition that constitutional scholarship is a high intellectual and moral calling. Ah, that made an enormous impact on me. It's remained with me ever since. I've tried to live up to it, and I'm happy to have the chance to say once again, Walter, thank you. The title of my lecture is Constitutional Virtues. The Constitution of the United States begins with what is arguably a lie. Recall the sonorous words of the preamble. We, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Well, no, not really, or not in any very obvious sense. But before I get to discussing the preamble's dissimulation, I want us to have clearly in mind what the preamble appears to be claiming 
we the people do ordain and establish. With this, these words, the preamble asserts, on behalf of the Constitution it thus introduces, a claim of political and perhaps of moral authority. The Constitution, we are to understand, is born, excuse me, is, as it later claims for itself, the supreme law of the land. Because we the people, the very folk who are to obey this supreme law, have made it so. It is we who have ordained and established it. When the Constitution lays claim to our allegiance and demands our obedience, it does so on our behalf and it speaks with our voice. Now this is familiar talk and a familiar concept in American public life. It is what President Lincoln meant, or perhaps better is understood usually to have meant, when he described the Federal Republic as government of the people, by the people, and for the people. This is the stuff of the civic lessons and political speeches. It is at the heart of what Americans mean when they call the Republic a democracy. And the popularity of these words and the cons this concept are no grounds for dismissing it. Self-government in the American sense, government constituted by and limited by the free act of the governed, is a noble concept and one with a great deal of appeal in a world where Chairman Mao's rather different axiom, political power comes from the barrel of a gun, often seems to be the operative truth. So, a beautiful political claim, but on its face, not true about this Constitution. Now, just recall for a moment the political maneuvers by which the Constitution came to have de facto authority. First, a meeting of dubious legality, met, went into secret session, immediately threw out the window any plausible construction of its commission, and eventually emerged with a radical proposal for change in the federal arrangements, one which, among other things, ignored entirely the requirement under the existing Constitution that such changes be approved by the legislatures of every state. Whatever its other merits, the Constitution has little claim to legitimacy based on what the American people had done before 1787. Well, but what about the ratification process, which is often described, and with some accuracy, as remarkably open by the standards of the time? Unfortunately, there, too, we will find little comfort in a search to vindicate the preamble's claim that we, the people, established the Constitution. The conventions that originally voted on whether to adopt the Constitution were by any standards acceptable today grossly unrepresentative of the people of the several states. Women, absent entirely, although being here in New Jersey, I should acknowledge the curious fact that apparently in this period some women could vote in New Jersey. African Americans and Native Americans, absent entirely in most states. The poor, a more complicated story but between formal rules and social custom, it seems clear that in most states, the underprivileged 
had little free voice about selecting delegates to the conventions. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not making the tired, utterly anachronistic observation that the founders did not share our sensibilities on sex, race, class, and so on. They didn't, and that is almost entirely irrelevant from my perspective. The point I want to make is this. Whatever we can say about the founders' understanding of who makes up the people who should ordain and establish a constitution, they did not employ any definition that we would entertain. Even if you grant that the ratification process could be described as the action of the people by their lights, it can't be described as such by ours. Now, the preamble's assertion is equally and obviously vulnerable when looked at from the perspective of time. Everyone who played a role in the making of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Civil War amendments, is dead. No one in the 21st century American people played any role in making into the Constitution any of the significant texts that take up most of the time of, say, the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, of course, this is just a peculiarly American version of a very old problem in Western political theory. But it is vexing non nonetheless, because without a theory of representation persuasively showing how the long dead's actions can somehow be identified as the actions of we the people today, the Constitution's claim to speak with our voice is empty. The imposition of one group's will, no matter how democratically arrived at within that group, on another is undemocratic from the second group's perspective. And, of course, there is no plausible candidate, even on the far horizon, for a generally accepted theory of constitutional representation. Now, it is tempting to dismiss the question of the Constitution's authority as an abstraction, a fit subject for a class in theory, but of no practical significance. After all, whatever you say about the preamble, the founders, or the principles of representative democracy, the exercise of power under and in the name of the Constitution is a matter of brute fact and force. The Internal Revenue Service collects the federal income tax. Congress and the President command U.S. soldiers to go to war. Defeated incumbents give way at the appointed times to successors they despise. Government officials give lip service and, even more remarkably, oftentimes real heed to the commands of unelected judges. And, of course, when we disagree over the Constitution's meaning, we have the United States Supreme Court, Supreme Court to sort us out. So, as a matter of political practice, isn't it true that we are under a Constitution and the Constitution is what the judges say it is? as Charles Evans Hughes said a century ago. And we just stipulate to the reality of constitutional authority and get on with business. I think not. As this society's general acquiescence in judicial review shows, American political practice itself incorporates 
the notion that the Constitution's commands override political practice, political decisions, even widely accepted practices and decisions, which conflict with those commands. In this system, political practice is normative only when it accords with the Constitution, and that includes the political practice of judicial review by the high court. I quoted Chief Justice Hughes a couple of minutes ago about the Constitution being what the judges say it is. Hughes came to regret that sentence. This remark has been used, he later wrote, regardless of its context, as if permitting the inference that I was picturing constitutional interpretation by the courts as a matter of judicial caprice. This was farthest from my thought. I was speaking of the essential function of the courts under our system in interpreting and applying constitutional safeguards. Interpreting and applying safeguards, not making them up. Justice William Brennan, it is said, customarily taught his clerks that the most important rule in constitutional law is the rule of five, meaning, apparently, with five justices, you can do anything. But it was Chief Justice Hughes, not Justice Brennan, at least as portrayed in this anecdote, who captured the traditional understanding of our constitutional practices, the one generally shared in American society, at least outside the legal and political science professions. Most Americans assume that judicial review itself and constitutional law generally whether pronounced on by the courts or otherwise, is a matter of interpreting and applying a set of commands or norms, rather than the creation of norms out of whole cloth, even cloth made by judicial experts. Americans do not, for the most part anyway, regard the Constitution as a euphemism for rule by a bevy of platonic guardians. And the justices themselves bear witness to this social understanding with every constitutional decision they issue, because every single one attempts to show, whether at great length or briefly, how the decision is grounded in the Constitution. Now, if I am right about this, the question of the Constitution's authority cannot be blithely dismissed as academic or theoretical where there is more than one plausible solution to a question of constitutional law, by common understanding the authority of the answer proposed, even if the answer is proposed by the United States Supreme Court, ultimately must rest somewhere than on the mere identity of the party giving the answer. Whatever else one may say about those intellectual perspectives that deny the possibility of political and legal decision, on any basis other than the whim or choice of the decision maker, they are completely antagonistic and utterly destructive of the traditional understanding of American constitutional law. And that understanding, let me repeat, assumes that the authority of a constitutional decision lies in its proper grounding in a constitution that is itself authoritative. Unless the constitution has legitimate authority, its claim to our allegiance and to our obedience and the claim present in every constitutional decision and in the system as a whole is a lie or self-deception.
Tonight, I wish to propose to you an argument, or rather part of an argument, that the Constitution does indeed enjoy de jure authority, and that its authority does rest in its relationship to the people, as the preamble claims, although not, I'm not going to be proposing an answer in quite the usual sense. I will not be attempting to present an, in its entirety an adequate and persuasive account of the Constitution's authority. Such an account would necessarily, I believe, include other themes. As Walter Murphy told, told us years ago, to understand constitutional interpretation, we must look synoptically at issues of definition, constitutional role and behavior, and modes of reasoning. Is three great questions of what, who, and how. Each of these questions bears on the problem of constitutional authority, but I shall not be able to speak to them tonight. Instead, I want us to get at the problem from a somewhat different direction. And here is my thesis in a nutshell. The activity of interpreting and applying the Constitution, as that activity is traditionally understood, demands of those who undertake it certain habits of mind and will, certain moral and intellectual virtues, to use the old language. The constitutional virtues, as I shall call them, are necessary if anyone, judge, legislator, voter, citizen, is to engage in those political and legal practices that revolve around the Constitution. Where the constitutional virtues are imperfectly realized, no doubt m much or perhaps all of the time, our practices are only partly successful in their own terms. In the complete absence or eclipse of the constitutional virtues, those practices become unintelligible. But the constitutional virtues are not simply prerequisites to engaging successfully in a certain activity, parallel to, say, the uh, habit of keeping track of the cards is a prerequisite to being good at bridge. The constitutional virtues are virtues in a broader or stronger sense. They involve choices about who we are and who we wish to be as human beings and as members of a political community. Whether we are actively interpreting the Constitution or making the decision to accept a constitutional interpretation proposed by someone else, we are inevitably shaping ourselves as moral actors in this political society. And it is in that fact, I believe, that we can discern some of the answer to our problem of authority. The Constitution's authority rests in part on the nature of those habits of mind and will, on those virtues, that it demands we develop in order to interpret it. And that, in turn, but, uh, gives it authority over us because the constitutional virtues are worthy ambitions for citizens of a decent and humane society. The Constitution is authoritative because it asks us to be a people we should wish to be. In recent decades, the concept of the virtues has come to assume a central place in a great deal of philosophical and theological discussion in ethics. I cannot stop to review this fascinating development, nor do I want to tie my proposal about the Constitution's authority to a particular theory of the, of the virtues, 
or indeed to any need to accept in general virtue ethics as an approach. In typical academic lawyer fashion, I merely wish to steal a couple of ideas from other people's work and use them uh, for my own project. By a virtue, as I've already suggested, I mean to refer to a habit or disposition of mind or will oriented in, say, Aristotelian thought to happiness or eudaimonia, and in the American constitutional tradition to the interpretation and application of the supreme law. I'm also going to assume that virtues necessarily rest on presuppositions about the individuals and the communities that embrace them. Aristotle, for example, thought that human beings, or perhaps some human beings, were political by nature, properly to be found living in a polis. And this presupposition shaped his account of the moral virtues. The American Constitution also makes certain presuppositions about American society, even if implicitly, and the constitutional virtues are grounded in these presuppositions. Let me begin, <clears throat> excuse me, let me begin with what I think is perhaps the most fundamental presupposition in the Constitution, its own intelligibility. The enterprise of creating and talking about, over time, a written Constitution as ongoing law assumes that human beings are capable of employing language in this fashion so as to enable themselves and others to make sense of the language. The point may seem obvious, but it is terribly important. There are other ways to be sure in which linguistic activity can be meaningful, but the meaningfulness of the Constitution rests in the intelligibility of its commands. In our system, Chief Justice John Marshall famously wrote, the powers of the legislature are defined and limited, and that those powers, those limits may not be mistaken or forgotten, the Constitution is written. The very point of having a written Constitution, in other words, is to supply rules of law that we can make sense of cognitively, intellectually. And going on to consider the implications of the judiciary's power to decide cases arising under the Constitution, Marshall insisted that it would be ridiculous to assume that such a case should be decided without examining the instrument under which it arises. In reaching a decision, the Constitution must be looked into by the judges for its meaning as an intelligible communication, not invoked by the judges as a mute symbol or talisman of power. What then is the constitutional virtue that flows most directly from the constitutional presupposition of intelligibility? The answer, I think, is indicated by the oath clauses of Articles 2 and 6 of the Constitution. When a president-elect promises to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, when any other American governmental official binds him or herself to support the Constitution, they are not swearing blind allegiance to an oracle of power. They are, as Chief Justice Marshall noted with specific reference to judges, they are making a promise to engage their abilities and understanding in a good faith effort to make sense of an instrument that is susceptible to such efforts. 
This would make no sense at all. Indeed, to require or to make such a promise would be objectionable in the extreme if, Mar if, in Marshall's language, the Constitution were in fact closed to the oath taker's understanding. The oath clauses are worse than solemn mockery. If good faith inter interpretation of an intelligible Constitution is forbidden or impossible. And the constitutional virtue that makes such interpretation possible is one that I shall term faith. Now let me immediately concede that this terminological choice may seem a little provocative. Faith, of course, has long been thought of as a virtue in Western ethical thought, but ordinarily as a theological virtue and thus peculiar to certain strain, sectarian strains in Western religion. I want to employ the term nonetheless, not so much to be provocative as to pick up on the dual meaning that the word faith has often been given by Christian theologians. Faith as the intellectual activity of belief and faith as the practical activity of commitment. The constitutional virtue of faith involves both an acceptance of the Constitution's intelligibility, it is not just an empty vessel into which we pour meaning, and an undertaking to govern oneself as a constitutional actor in accordance with this understanding. Without this belief and commitment, American constitutionalism makes no sense. In an era when many academics believe that everything I've just said is moonshine or bad faith, it is worth recalling that the great intellectual antagonists of the Warren Court, Hugo Black and John Marshall Harlan, were alike in their possession of faith in the sense I'm using the word. I don't mean that they agreed on everything. Of course, they certainly did not. Justice Black was famous for his insistence that in exercising the power of judicial review, the Supreme Court's commission begins and ends with the words of the Constitution while Justice Harlan thought the con that constitutional liberty is not a series of isolated points pricked out in terms of the text's words. Black and Harlan disagreed radically, but they disagreed radically over how best to engage in an endeavor which they understood fundamentally in the same fashion. Black the textualist believed, as he repeatedly wrote, that because words can have many meanings, constitutional interpretation cannot simply be a matter of looking up definitions in a dictionary. Instead, it is the practice of, in his words, seeking to execute policies written into the Constitution. At the same time, while Justice Harlan often stressed that it is the purpose, purposes of those guarantees and not their text that is the ultimate goal of the interpreter, Doing so for Harlan involved painstaking attention to the language of the Constitution. The long-running dispute between Black and Harlan was a lover's quarrel. It assumed the intelligibility of the Constitution and of constitutional law. Their disagreement was passionate because both were committed to the same task. Justices Black and Harlan, then, were exemplars of what I am calling the constitutional virtue of faith. And their collegiality in the presence of such sharp disagreement was not merely the product of personal affection, although it was that, 
but also a sign of what the virtue of faith enables, renders possible, dialogue. One of Black's clerks remembered years later how Harlan would invariably slip off, step by to pick Black up on the way to court or conference. They'd walk down the hall together, arm in arm, while Black would try with great animation to convince Harlan to go the other way. Faith and the intelligibility of the Constitution makes it possible to discuss its meaning in a way that is a discussion, not a shouting match. We can talk together, not just, not just call one another names. In contrast, the talismanic constitution of political choice, do what you prefer, is merely a form of argumentum ad baculum. Let's turn now to a second presupposition of the Constitution, the unavoidable presence of uncertainty in its interpretation and execution. Founding-era constitutionalists understood correctly, I believe, that no legal instrument, complex in its provisions or in its goals, can eliminate ambiguity. The founders, therefore, quite consciously understood the corollary and accepted it, that interpreting the Constitution is an intellectually creative activity, not simply a mechanical process of unveiling meanings entirely present in the text already. Madison was only stating a truism of his era when he wrote in The Federalist that all new laws, including the Constitution, it's clear, all new laws, though penned with the greatest technical skill and passed on the fullest and most mature deliberation, are considered as more or less obscure and equivocal until their meaning be liquidated and ascertained by a series of particular discussions and adjudications. The Constitution is intelligible, but much of the time its specific meaning, as applied to specific situations, is not immediately obvious or indisputable. Now, from the adoption of the Ninth Amendment on, the Constitution's text has rendered this presupposition explicit. Remember the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. I leave to one side the question of what a court can or should do with the Ninth Amendment in exercising the power of judicial review. That's a contested question. But what surely cannot be disputed is that the Ninth Amendment acknowledges the possibility of varying constructions of the text. The command not to construe it in a certain way implies the rational possibility of doing so. Now, some linguistically uh, conceivable constructions are patently unreasonable, but a great many readings of the Constitution's provisions are plausible and yet must nevertheless be wrong under the supremest law of the excluded middle. The Ninth Amendment and a few other provisions of like sort are attempts in the text itself to rule out certain wrong-headed constitutional arguments. But for the most part, the Constitution leaves it to its interpreters to deal appropriately with constitutional uncertainty. After all, even the Ninth Amendment requires interpretation. In the presence of ambiguity, if constitutional interpretation is not to devolve into cynical posturing, Interpreters must display the constitutional virtues 
of integrity and candor. Integrity in coming to the decision as an obedient attempt to understand the Constitution. Candor in the presentation of arguments that often can be said only to be the interpreter's best judgment, not the text's unmistakable bidding. Constitutional ambiguity is, as Madison knew, unavoidable, and as he also knew, uncertainty gives ample room for insincere and manipulative arguments. The virtues of integrity and candor mark the distinction between pretense and reality in constitutional interpretation, and as such, they are indispensable. And no member of the Supreme Court has ever dealt with greater openness about the Constitution's ambiguities than Robert Jackson. Jackson's expression of uncertainty in the Carriger gambling tax case is well known, at least to lawyers. He began his concurrence with the statement that, I concur in the judgment and opinion of the court, but with such doubt that if the minority agreed upon opinion which did not impair legitimate use of the taxing power, I probably would join it. Carriger was no sport, moreover. Jackson's opinions on constitutional issues often allude to the necessity of decision in the presence of uncertainty. In a 1941 opinion, for example, he wrote that he did not ignore or belittle the difficulties of giving concrete meaning to the Constitution's often obscure and vagrant phrases, but, he continued, the difficulty of the task does not excuse us from giving its general and abstract words whatever of specific content and concreteness they will bear as we mark out their application. Just as Jackson is a towering figure in American constitutional history, but fame is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for the possession of the virtues of integrity and candor. One of my personal heroes and a great exemplar of these two constitutional virtues is a man little known today. Amos T. Ackerman. Ackerman was a New Hampshire native who moved to Georgia before the Civil War, and then when secession came, fought for the Confederacy. But after the war, Ackerman believed, as he wrote, that the South's surrender in good faith ought to involve a surrender of the substance as well as the forms of the Confederate cause. And as a result, he joined the Republican Party. And from J June 1870, through January 1872, Ackerman was the Attorney General of the United States. As an historical matter, Ackerman's most important role lay in his heroic effort to protect the voting rights and the civil rights of African Americans in the South. But that noble and heartbreaking story is not what I want to talk about tonight. Instead, I want us briefly to consider an opinion Ackerman wrote as Attorney General in August 1871. The question was a fairly technical one. Would it violate the Constitution's grant to the President of the power of appointment if Congress were required that some officers the President appoints pass a civil service exam? Ackerman's response was that this would be consistent with the Constitution so long as Congress left president with a large enough pool so that he can make a genuine choice. Before concluding his opinion, Ackerman briefly addressed a possible objection. But it may be asked, he wrote, 
At what point must Congress stop? I confess my inability to answer. But the difficulty of drawing a line between such limitations as are and such as are not allowed by the Constitution is no proof that both classes do not exist. The fact that, as Ackerman also acknowledged, it is impossible to tell precisely where in the scale of constitutional, where in the scale constitutional right ceases and constitutional wrong begins, this does not mean that anything goes, that all conclusions are consistent with a fair-minded attempt to interpret the Constitution and to obey it. As was the case with the issue presented to Ackerman in his judgment, the Constitution's commands often require us to come to practical judgments, not logical deductions, about where on the constitutional scale of right and wrong <clears throat> some matter falls. <clears throat> the constitutional virtues are of integrity and candor that Ackerman exhibited in his 1871 opinion are essential to our system because of the inescapability of such judgment in the interpretation of the Constitution. <clears throat> human beings, and especially human beings organized into political societies, do not like disagreement. And the reasons are perfectly understandable. Disagreement on anything above the trivial is confusing. It puts harmonious relationships at risk. It tends to expand and become self-perpetuating. It can spiral into overt and even violent conflict. As an historical matter, the typical political response to the dangers posed by disagreement has been to try to eliminate their source. After all, if we all agreed, we wouldn't get into arguments. Or that is the implicit theory underlying the long story of social attempts to impose political, ethical, and religious uniformity. We can get rid of disagreement, and therefore we should. The Constitution rests on the opposite presupposition. Disagreement on matters, including matters of the greatest importance, is ineradicable. And it is a tragic mistake to attempt to eliminate it. Long before John Rawls, James Madison wrote, that where there is liberty, which is essential to political life, there will be factions, citizens united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, not shared by other citizens. It is quite impossible to stop different people from coming to differing opinions. The latent causes of faction are sown in the nature of man, and we see them everywhere. Without denying the potentially destructive force of disagreement over political, economic, or religious matters, Madison insisted that the Constitution would deal with such dangers by other means than the attempt to suppress disagreement. In other words, from the beginning, it's been clear that political conflict, political disagreement, even passionate and principled disagreement, will always be a feature of political life under this Constitution. And that's witnessed, too, in the text, not just by the First Amendment, but also by an often neglected but incredibly important provision in the original Constitution, 
Article 6's command that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Madison's solution to the problem of faction in the Federalist relied primarily on the federal structure of the Union. But after ratification, it quickly became clear that there can be no purely structural answer to the risks the disagreement poses to the unity of the community. The Sedition Act of 1798 stands as an early example of the susceptibility of the Constitution's own structural forms to distortion and manipulation by those afraid to run the risks of disagreement. The Constitution's ambition to maintain political community in the midst of disagreement, even radical disagreement, can only be achieved if those who act under it possess the constitutional virtue that I shall call humility. The habit of doubting that the Constitution res re resolves divisive political or social issues as opposed to requiring them to be thrashed out through the processes of ordinary, revisable politics. This is not the same as skepticism or self-doubt. What I mean by the constitutional virtue of humility is perfectly consistent with a strong and even passionate commitment to one's own views on contested matters of constitutional law. The virtue manifests itself instead in a continuing recognition that the Constitution is primarily a framework for political argument and not a tool for the elimination of debate. The result is a humble or limited conception of the role of the Constitution, of the Supreme Court, and of one's own constitutional convictions. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. was not a humble man in the ordinary sense of the word. But he consistently displayed the constitutional virtue of humility. Both Holmes's famous deference to legislative decisions and his post-1918 advocacy of strong protection for freedom of speech stem from the fact that he understood the Constitution along the lines I've suggested. He signaled this basic attitude about the role of the Constitution at the very beginning of his service on the court in Otis against Parker, decided in 1903. Holmes wrote, Considerable latitude must be allowed for differences of view. Otherwise, a Constitution, instead of embodying only relatively fundamental rules of right, would become the partisan of a particular set of ethical or economical opinions, which by no means are held always and everywhere and by everyone. The existence of honest differences of view over the meaning of the Constitution ought to give one pause before concluding that the Constitution forbids the resolution of a social conflict through politics, that it, the Constitution, in essence, ordains a certain orthodoxy on the matter. Of course, the Constitution's fundamental rules of right sometimes do rule out government's adoption of a particular political, social, or moral view, and when it does so, that is to be respected and enforced. But as a general matter, the Constitution leaves our disagreements to the political domain of conflict and faction. Or, as Holmes also wrote, the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally different views. The constitutional virtue of humility is a predisposition to recall 
that under this Constitution, political and social disagreement is not itself illegitimate. Now, I have identified what I believe are certain constitutional virtues, dispositions of mind and will that are necessary if men and women are to interpret and apply the Constitution as that instrument and the history of our dealings with it demand. Without those virtues as ideals and as realities to the extent possible, American constitutionalism, I submit, is a fraud. Even if you accept that part of my claim, however, I haven't yet resolved the problem with which I began. The observation that you need to follow the cards closely to be a good bridge player doesn't tell you whether you ought to want to be a good bridge player. And I did promise you that I was going to give you part of the answer to the question of the Constitution's authority. Well, here it is, slightly expanded over my earlier statement. The Constitution's legitimate claim to authority over you and over me rests in part on what it asks us to be if we are to play the game that it proposes. Justice Holmes, it seems, once rejected the exhortation, do justice, with the response that it was merely his job to play the game according to the rules. Now, it may be that Holmes thought such an understanding of constitutional interpretation made the enterprise completely parallel to the enterprise of playing bridge, just a matter of choosing which game you want to play without broader significance for the character of the player. If so, Justice Holmes was wrong. The constitutional virtues of faith, integrity, candor, and humility are essential to the game of constitutional interpretation, but their exercise and their import is not limited to that game, for they draw more generally the outline of an attitude towards life and political community. Confidence in the possibility of dialogue, recognition of the inescapability of judgment, humility in the imposition of one's own views, these are not dispositions parallel to following the cards. They instead are the characteristics of men and women who recognize the incorrigible otherness of those with whom they must live, and yet who decline the old, sour solution of denying the equal humanity and citizenship of the other. To interpret and apply this Constitution, we the people must embody the constitutional virtues. To be a humane and decent society, we must do the same. The Constitution requires of us that we achieve decency and humanity in order to play the game, to interpret it rightly. And in that demand, it achieves authority over us, not because we, the people, made it, but because it makes of us a people that we ought to be. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Powell, for that splendid Murphy lecture. The floor is now uh, open for questions. We have a custom in the Madison program of uh, reserving the first few minutes of the Q&A for any students, graduate students or undergraduates who'd uh, like to lead off with a question. And if there are any students who would uh, like to launch us, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, not quite right. You can speak in the grown-up section, too. But uh, are, would any students like to, to launch us? 
If not, the floor is generally open. Uh, yes, a former student of Professor Murphy's, distinguished professor at Fordham University, literally now distinguished professor at Fordham University, uh, James Fleming. Several answers, or several parts to an answer, Jim. Oh, only way I can pick up. Right. <clears throat> I've got several parts to an answer. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think you know, that I've tried to indicate. I'm not talking about something that's just the preserve of the bureaucracy or something of that sort. Um, these are virtues that are necessary to the community, and therefore they're ones that must be prevalent in the community if the system is to work. I think number one we're probably in better shape with respect to people who aren't in the expert professions about this than we are with respect to lawyers and political scientists. As I also suggested, I think most people would tend to, in a perhaps not altogether reflective way, agree with most of what I've said. But that doesn't, of course, really answer your question. It's just to say that we're not as bad off there as we are in law school and perhaps also in places that don't have law schools. Um, I think the answer is in part that it is incumbent on American, American education. I'm not a public edu school educator, but I think that one of the crucial parts of public education is the, the sort of presentation, not the Indoctrination, that would be self-contradictory, but the, the presentation of a particular approach towards American constitutional life, American political life as a community. Um, so I think that's one place where I would look. Another place, I would look right at at least law faculties. We don't do a very good job of communicating that to the students who come through our doors and go out to be lawyers. We tend to some of us actually inculcate contrary perspectives. And I think that's, uh, that's a matter of genuine intellectual disagreement and conflict. I, I want to be saying to my colleagues who have that attitude or perhaps just refrain altogether from taking attitudes that you're just wrong and you're doing harm. Because part, of course, of this story is that it's okay to have serious disagreement. Um, but it's a, that's a great question, and, and one of the reasons for choosing, uh, you know, attorneys general and justices is simply the ease of finding clear examples. Uh, yes, Professor Shepley. Well, clearly there can be. I mean, see the Civil War. That's a question that only has, in a sense, an answer at the end, whatever the end of the Federal Republic may be. Will it be able to surmount its challenges or not? And I don't, you know, I, I don't have a 
I don't intend to be being Pollyanna-ish or optimistic necessarily. I'm not at all sure that we can make the system work indefinitely on what I take to be its traditional presuppositions. And if we don't, then we're going to go in some other direction into something that really is a bureaucracy or that moves towards perhaps parliamentary democracy in the, in the old British sense. Um, and I hope it's clear, I'm not suggesting that anybody has to shut up and sit down when the system at the moment resolves a position against your passionate commitments. The, one of the worst paragraphs in my judgment, you certainly may disagree, one of the worst paragraphs in all of the United States reports is that paragraph in the joint opinion in Planned Parenthood against Casey, well, that several paragraphs, which the court suggests that it has called upon the nation to lay aside its disagreements and to come together and agree under the court's perspective on the issue of abortion. That is ultra-virus. That's way beyond the court's remit and quite contrary to my image of the Constitution. But, of course, I understand the temptation that led the Joint Opinions authors to say that, which is the fear that we've hit a problem that we just cannot agree on and we can't agree to disagree because we have passionate, deeply felt, well-reasoned, and conflicting views. May I follow up Jeff uh, Kim's excellent question there and just ask whether the following thought by uh, the justices is ever legitimate, that X issue, you name it, slavery, abortion, whatever it is, is just too hot a political question for the institutions of democratic deliberation to handle. And so for that reason, it falls to the courts to remove the issue from politics for the sake of public peace. Is that ever a legitimate thought? I think it is, but let me explain why I think it is. Um, and this goes to one of, one of those great questions that Walter Murphy and Jim Fleming and others have taught us to ask, which is how do you go about doing constitutional interpretation? What is the, you know, what is the activity look like? And I take it that one of the things that's involved and that's legitimately within the scope of the activity are arguments that Philip Bobbitt calls prudential, looking at what the probable outcomes are of adopting this or that interpretation of the Constitution. I don't see any a priori reason why a prudential argument isn't legitimate. Certainly we make them. And therefore, it might be an appropriate one under certain circumstances. But I'd have to have a specific case in order to to know whether I wanted to, whether I bought the argument. Sure, sure. Uh, yes, uh, Rabbi Professor Novak. No to the third question. <laughs> the, the Constitution is emphatically the contrivance of human beings, fallible human beings, and does not deserve uh, the religious or theological virtue of faith. Um, I'm deliberately using the terms, all, in fact, really all four of the 
virtues I've named, I'm using words that are familiar words, and I'm using them in unfamiliar fashions. And part of that is to, in the hope of sort of jarring people's thinking, didn't think about it. Um, but I would, want to, I would want to stress that, for example, the reason I chose the word faith for that particular constitutional virtue um, was really to capture the twofold use that the word has in certain strands of at least Christian theology. Um, but I'm not talking about the theological virtue. And um, I forgot what the fourth question was. It can't be the object of faith in a theological sense. Well, partly to be provocative so that someone would ask me four questions. And partly, uh, as I say, because, because what I mean by the constitutional virtue of, let's call it X, is both a belief in the intelligibility of the Constitution that you can actually engage in interpretation as something other than uh, just picking and choosing what you want, and a commitment to comporting yourself as a constitutional interpreter in the light of that belief. And that parallels, in I think an interesting fashion, uh, what some Christian theologians have said about the theological virtue of faith. But if you don't like the word, uh, help me come up with a different word, and I'll be happy to use that. Rabbi, remembering the, the season that, we, that we, we were in just recently and you said there were four questions, I was thinking you'd begin with why is tonight like Noah. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. <laughs> you're in a four-question mood, but you're not – you may be the youngest. I'm not – Seventeen. Two dissenters. Stuart. <laughs> no loading the dots. Uh, you may be Black's descent in Griswold is often pointed to as one of the as sort of a classic example of Black's rigid doctrinaire textualism. <coughs> and of course, Black, perhaps with a little bit of the same cheekiness that I've been displaying with the word faith, um, sometimes says things. Uh, I think just to get people riled up. I'm just a central, simple country lawyer, you know, pulling out the text of the Constitution kind of thing. Um, the quotes I embedded in my paragraph about black, uh, which have him saying things like, words have many meanings, and therefore, you know, you're not looking just for rigid textual stuff, but you're looking for the policies embedded in the Constitution. Language is so close to Harlan's kind of language that it's, it's startling. 
That language comes from, not for the first time, but he uses it in his Griswold descent. Black's opinion is misread when it's read as <coughs> doctrinaire literalism. Number one. Number two, um, Douglas's opinion is a hard opinion to make sense of. Part of that is because Douglas didn't write it the way we read it. He originally wrote it as a First Amendment opinion, and when he got hammered, uh, Justice Black wrote that uh, the notion of assembly in bed is not something I have thought of as a constitutional idea before. Um, the result was that Douglas basically took all the same stuff he had in the original opinion and fiddled with it some so it didn't seem to be a First Amendment opinion any longer, leaving the question, well, what kind of opinion is it? Since he also says it wasn't a due process, substantive due process opinion, as in the old style of Lochner against New York. Um, Uh, I'm not going there. Um, I would have voted with Black. I can understand an argument, and if Justice Douglas had made a better shot at this, I might have, like Justice Jackson, I might have, in fact, joined the majority, or in this case, the majority opinion. I can understand an argument that perhaps marriage is a concept, an institution, so presupposed by American, the American constitutional order that you can infer certain kinds of basic sort of privileges for it. In the light of, with hindsight, it's quite clear that even if the court had said that, that wouldn't have stopped later courts from using the decision to go elsewhere. As <coughs> many or perhaps all of you know, the very next decision in the sort of Griswold line is one that has the remarkable sentence if the right to privacy means anything, it must apply to unmarried as well as married people, which makes total hash out of everything Douglas said about marriage. So I think with, at least with the light of hindsight, and perhaps even without it, I would have voted with Black that this is, this is simply returning to the era of Lochner, to an era of constitutional interpretation that really didn't have any grounding in the Constitution. Uh, Professor Bressler. I think that is one of the toughest and most profound questions in American constitutionalism. Um, and I think, I, I think you can defend either the proposition that, yes, on some rare occasions the court might appropriately do that, and I think you can also defend the proposition that I would hold, which, no, the court can't ever do it. And here's why I think that. I think the court's commission lies only in the doing of law. It has no other function. It has no other power. Therefore, when it acts contrary to law, if it ever were to think it was doing that, it would simply be um, not just acting illegitimately, but acting in some sense entirely lawlessly or entirely against um, uh, what its raison d'etre is. Um, I mean, this is a little bit like, two, two final thoughts. This is a little bit like, or a lot like, actually, 
Justice Jackson's dissent in Korematsu, the Japanese concentration camp decision from, the, from World War II, in which Jackson says, you know, the military may be right to do this for all I know as military, but I can't okay it as constitutional law. I can't say it's law or lawful. And I, I resonate a lot to what, um, what Jackson said. And the other, the other observation is you know, we've confronted this before. Anti-slavery judges dealing with the Fugitive Slave Act, a great classic example. Uh, and it, it, I, I have nothing but respect for judges who find themselves confronting something like that and being puzzled about what they rightly do. Uh, yes, sir. Right. <clears throat> I would abolish the hearings altogether. I think they're a total waste of time. Uh, they merely provide senators with the chance to um, get some airtime. Uh, and they're simply not, I think, ever going to produce any good results. If we switch them to talking about these sorts of things as opposed to, you know, quizzing Chief Justice Roberts about whether he remembers, you know, what some case was, uh, all we'll get is the justices all saying the bromides, excuse me, the, just, the would, would be justices, just telling us the bromides that we want to hear. Um, so I don't think there's much uh, point in that particular change. The, ch the change, you know, this goes back to the question about, Jim Fleming's question about, you know, is this, who, who is this for? It's for everybody, and it only will matter if it becomes or re-becomes something that is generally accepted as important. If, for example, uh, if, for example, decision makers like the president actually take that into account. Now, this is not a partisan observation. I'm talking about, you know, every president in recent memory. So that one thing you could really seriously say to yourself is, no, you know, so-and-so really does have the same politics I do, but I think she'll get on the bench and just misbehave. And that's a, I have a little bit of hope, not much, a little bit. My little bit of hope is that some of the rhetoric of the politicians themselves, you know, looks in this direction. It's, it remains the case that, for example, presidents tend to say, well, I'm going to appoint judges who will follow the law and not make it. And while I don't myself have a lot of confidence that that's what they're doing, uh, the fact that that remains, you know, hypocrisy is the tribute that, you know, vice pays for virtue. It still remains, at least in some sense, the virtue that these are the virtues we want people to have, um, but it's it's, it's got to be got to be something that really is widely prevalent in the society and in government and in law schools and in places without law schools, um, because if it's not, it's just going to be play acting. Professor Murphy.
I'm so sorry. The virtue of candor. The virtue of candor. <laughs> oh, well. No, actually, I agree. <laughs> and you're not. Um, <laughs> you're not. Um, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, remember I said this was only part of an answer. Other parts would include, for example, the important question, and I think you and I probably agree entirely, uh, at least in the in general, um, about what counts as part of the Constitution, what counts as constitutional arguments, what kind of things do you want to look at? Believe it or not, as long as this may have seemed, it started out longer. And part of the reason it was longer, and I eventually had to stop it because I realized that, you know, there was no way it was not going to be way too long. 
was because I wanted to have what amounted to a second section that would have been essentially, here are some of those themes. And so any uh, complete answer, and indeed this document, if it ever uh, does anything other than inflict itself on you, good folk, uh, probably ought to, in some fashion, at least acknowledge that and maybe even incorporate it. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes, sir. A couple of thoughts. Um, the Constitution, I suspect, is, at least from my perspective, on a somewhat different footing uh, because it is defining, as it were, the rules of the game as opposed to being an exercise under them. Uh, for most purposes of looking at a particular law, if there's not a constitutional problem within the usual rules of the game, then there's no problem with its legitimacy within the overall system. The question I wanted to raise with my beginning was what grounds the authority of the system as a whole? The preamble gives you a rhetorical answer. And that answer, if we press it too hard, doesn't satisfy, at least not me, uh, because it, you know, in sort of the spirit of the kind of civics classes I actually want people to be taking in, uh, you know, fourth grade, uh, you're very likely to have people say things like, well, we the people made it, suggesting that, you know, we the people like us, but it's not that at all, of course. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure we're actually in disagreement about the proposition that, as a general matter, of course we just, you know, if, if it's in the system now through legitimate means within the system, that's fine. But the Constitution's ultimate authority, why should I accept the Constitution's authority, other than the pragmatic answer that if I don't, I'll get in a lot of trouble. The IRS does not want to debate me about, you know, democratic legitimacy. Professor Brad Watson.
Well, yeah, thank you. <clears throat> I, w I wouldn't want to use the word constrain, although I, I don't remember using it, and I'm not quibbling. I don't think the kinds of things I'm talking about are, as it were, rules that somehow you can impose on people and get them to behave properly. A great deal of constitutional theory seems to take that form. If only the judges would follow my theory, everything would be okay, and they'd only make good decisions, they wouldn't make bad decisions. Um, I don't think that's right at all. I'm, I'm talking more in the, in the tone of what attitude do you take towards the enterprise that you are engaged in. Take the, uh, the opinion by Attorney General Ackerman. If you read the opinion as a whole, uh, I think one of the things that would strike you is a sense in which Ackerman is he's very, very candid about the lines of reasoning he's addressing, what he is able to say, what he doesn't feel he can say, and that really becomes striking at the end, where, from which I quoted some, uh, where he says, well, look, you know, I understand that I've given you an, a particular approach to this problem that doesn't generate absolute answers. But I think if you read the opinion as a whole, your sense is not that this is someone who, for example, knew the answer that President Grant wanted and was striving to find it, you know, find a way to articulate it, but rather somebody who thought that there was something to the question of what does the Appointments Clause require and was trying to get an answer while being candid that he didn't have either all the answers or that there was even, it was even possible to answer the question you know, with geometric exactitude. Um, it may be. I mean, I teach, my law teaching is in a law school. <laughs> and that's a very different setting, I suspect, than, for example, here at Princeton. And my divinity school teaching is another matter altogether. Uh, in the law school context, I meet people all the time who think that everything I said is ridiculous, not because it's too general or abstract, but because it is simply wrong. I know a very distinguished constitutional lawyer, I will not disclose the person's name, who believes with great principle and with great passion that, of course, there could be nothing other than choosing the good political outcomes. And, of course, he wouldn't say you should do that, you know, willy-nilly or, you know, frivolously. He wants you to choose the ones that are morally right in his judgment. And he thinks the, the entire sort of enterprise of candor, of what I've called humility, of what I've called faith, uh, is just a bunch of hokum. So it may be that I'm, that what this really is is a polemic against people who aren't to be found in this room. I want to recognize Mr. Joy not only because we'll get an excellent question, but because it'll be an accent that'll make you feel at home, Jeff. Uh, Mr. Joy. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't have an accent. That's not an accent. <laughs> the rest of you do. Thank you very much for a very thoughtful talk. Thank you. And to say that it's just a
Well, that's a great question, and <clears throat> I only have a couple of thoughts as opposed to an answer. Uh, one thought is that the politics, including the political world of constitutional interpretation, is in part a matter of possibilities. And therefore, the, 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 the immediate answers are going to be small scale, small ones, getting presidents to be more sort of inclined to think about judicial temperament as opposed to getting Republicans or Democrats who are going to be on the bench for the next 75 years. Um, and so it's going to be small-scale battles in all sorts of different places. In my place, once again, very different than the one that most of you may live in, uh, in my place, the mere fight to get it on the table that there could be such a thing as constitutional interpretation as opposed to the imposition of your values or mine, depending on getting five votes on the Supreme Court in the name of the Constitution. Just getting the notion there could be something else to it on the table is a fight because people in academic law, so many of them, have given that up. They don't believe there's any such thing. Uh, so it's going to be small-scale fights. I forgot what my other thought was. Okay. You know, I think your hand was up some time ago, and I, I failed to cool. – did you have a question? I, I did. Yeah, go, please, Wendy, please. Wendy Well, yeah, I adopt that. Um, it's it's got to be that there's the two things in our life. They absolutely do. Um, the presuppositions that either the Constitution itself, I think, originally does embody implicitly, such as intelligibility, or others that may have been, as it were, developed over time and understood generally to belong to it or have been inserted by um, amendment process or whatever. Um, all of those matters are shaping the form of the Constitution. Uh, and there's an, I think there's an inevitable dialectic, I hate that word, there's an inevitable back and forth between the Constitution as Bar Justice Black's words, principles, or no, excuse me, his, his word was policies, policies, uh, and the details of the text. Although I would also note in that respect that the details of the text in our tradition are deserving of considerable respect simply because they are the details of the text. And there are underlying principles behind that. Um, so I, 
we'd have to we'd have to talk more so I'd understand better the question. But yes, the, absolutely, those things are, are working together and in interaction all the time. I truly hate to have to bring such a wonderful conversation to a close. Uh, before I uh, ask you to join me in thanking Professor Powell for his wonderful lecture and conversation with us, let me uh, just uh, make a brief uh, commercial announcement. Uh, I want to announce that uh, the next major annual lecture in the Madison program will be next fall's Herbert W. Vaughn Lecture on America's Founding Principles, and I'm delighted to report that the Vaughn Lecturer in the fall will be uh, Professor James McPherson, the great Civil War historian who will be talking on uh, Lincoln's understanding of uh, America's founding uh, principles. So uh, we'll be announcing uh, the time and place and date uh, soon, and I hope you'll uh, all put that one on your calendars. Uh, coming up just uh, later this week, are, we have our two final public events for this uh, academic year. Wednesday, April 26th, at 4.30, right here in uh, Computer Science 104, visiting Professor uh, Colleen Sheehan will deliver the final of our Alpheus T. Mason uh, lectures in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, The Quest for Freedom. And Professor uh, uh, Sheehan's topic is James Madison in the Spirit of Republicanism. Of course, that's open to uh, the entire university community and to the public, and I hope that you will uh, attend April 26th, this Wednesday, uh, at 4.30. Uh, then this coming Sunday, April 30th, at 2 p.m., we are very proud and honored uh, to be presenting United States Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Breyer, who will be uh, appearing uh, to have a conversation about his uh, book, Active Liberty. Now, we're going to hold this in Makash 50, which is just the largest room we could we could get for this occasion. Unfortunately, we couldn't get uh, McCarter Theater uh, or uh, Richardson. So it's the largest room we could find. It's a free but ticketed event. Uh, tickets for people in the Princeton community are available now at Frist Ticket Office, and a limited number of tickets for the general public will be available at the Richardson Auditorium box office beginning at noon on Thursday, April 27th. I apologize particularly to members of the community that we do not have more tickets available. It's simply a, a matter of the space. We did our best to get the largest uh, possible uh, room, but the tickets are, uh, uh, are limited, and uh, I, I just apologize for that. But now I want to invite you uh, to join me in thanking Professor Powell for maintaining the tradition of wonderfully thoughtful and provocative uh, Murphy lectures. I know nothing pleases the true McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence more than that. Professor Powell.